I feel like I'm in high school again, Mar, he said. The food is terrible and everybody's on drugs. I nearly had a panic attack trying to figure out who to sit with at dinner. Who are the cool kids in an insane asylum? The bulimics look great, but the bipolars make better conversation. Sounds like you fit right in, I said, and Charlie laughed. He sounded like himself for the first time in three months. What had he sounded like before that? Like himself, but falling down a well in slow motion. Each time I saw him, his voice was fainter and somehow more echoey. That's something Charlie might have said. Normally, I'm more cautious with my descriptions. I have never heard anyone fall down a well. Are you on drugs? I asked. I start tomorrow, Charlie said. Wanted to call you tonight in case there's anything you wanted to ask before they erase my mind. Don't joke, I said. I thought about it. What's your favorite nut? I asked. Oh, Mar, he said. You know the answer to that one. Charlie called again two days after that and told me they have him on two milligrams of risperidone, which was more than I would have given him, but never mind, and it made him woozy. But the characters, Mar, he said, the characters. He was taking notes in his journal for an essay he planned to write about his downfall. Take it easy, I said. If they think your journal is antisocial, they might confiscate it. I am, Charlie said. I've only got enough energy to write for like five minutes a day. The rest of the time I watch Lost on DVD. He didn't talk about his therapy, but I didn't expect him to. We had always respected each other's privacy. How long are they going to keep you? I asked. Charlie said, they're saying a couple of weeks. I said I would visit as soon as I could, probably the next weekend. Then, afraid that Charlie would draw the wrong conclusion, I clarified, I just want to know that you're all right and that you aren't making the doctors miserable. Charlie said it was his job to make the doctors miserable. Then he said, just kidding, my job right now is to make a world I can live in. I wondered if he'd pick that phrase up in therapy and what dopey therapist could have fed it to him. What Charlie needed was exactly not to make a world. He needed to figure out how to live in the one that exists. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, April 11th, and today we will consider the horror, both the otherworldly and the ordinary, and we'll do so with author Paul Lafarge, who we met on this program back in 2015 for episode 197. Lafarge is the author of four novels, most recently The Night Ocean from Penguin Press this past March 2017. From the award-winning author and New Yorker contributor, a riveting novel about secrets and scandals, psychiatry, and pulp fiction, inspired by the lives of H.P. Lovecraft and his circle, yields a mini-layered mystery about identity, obsession, and science fiction fandom. Marina Willett, MD, has a problem. Her husband, Charlie, has become obsessed with H.P. Lovecraft, in particular with one episode in the legendary horror writer's life. In the summer of 1934, the old gent lived for two months with a gay teenage fan named Robert Barlow at Barlow's family home in Central Florida. What were the two of them up to? Were, were they friends or something more? Just when Charlie thinks he solved the puzzle, a new scandal erupts and he disappears. The police say it's suicide. Marina is a psychiatrist 
and she doesn't believe them. A tour de force of storytelling, The Night Ocean follows the lives of some extraordinary people. Lovecraft, the most influential American horror writer of the 20th century, whose stories continue to win new acolytes even as his racist views provoke new critics. Barlow, a seminal scholar of Mexican culture who killed himself after being blackmailed for his homosexuality, and who collaborated with Lovecraft on the beautiful story, The Night Ocean. His student, future beat writer William S. Burroughs, and Elsie Spinks, a kindly Canadian appliance salesman and science fiction fan, the only person who knows the origins of the Erotonomicon, purported to be the intimate diary of Lovecraft himself. As a heartbroken Marina follows her missing husband's trail in an attempt to learn the truth, the novel moves across the decades and along the length of the continent from a remote Ontario town through New York and Florida to Mexico City, the Night Ocean is about love and deception, about the way the stories earn our trust and betray it. More information about Paul and his works can be found on his website, paullafarge.com. It's a pleasure to be welcoming him back to the show. How are you doing today, Paul? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, this is a wonderful, lovely, lovely book, and so I want to thank you for writing it. Well, thanks for having me on the show again. You bet. But I don't want to spoil it at all. And so to begin with, I'm thinking about just like talking around the edges of it because a lot of different things arose as I was reading it. But I'm curious, have you ever read The Transmigration of Timothy Archer by Philip K. Dick? I have, not for a long time, but um, yes. Because one of the, one of the thoughts that I, I had as I was reading your book is this idea both of obsession, you know, how deeply you get wrapped up into a world, and then also the idea of what a person is and how, you know, whether or not death is the end. Yeah, well, those were certainly questions that Dick asked eloquently and, uh, you know, in a, a fascinating way. And I, I was a, a big Philip K. Dick fan. I sent I remain a, a fan of his work, but I went through a really serious Philip K. Dick phase uh, at some point in my youth, and uh, I'm sure that uh, that my thinking about about novels and certainly about science fiction was shaped by all the uh, the Dick that I read at that point. Um, and uh, you know, The Night Ocean is also a book about horror writers and science fiction writers, so it's, uh, you know, it makes sense that it should be in the, the space uh, that, you know, that, that Dick is working in, although in a slightly different way. What about The Cemetery of Forgotten Books? Are you familiar with that series? I am not familiar with that series. Well, so there's a conceit in that series that that a book contains it's not so much the soul of the author, but it does become its own entity that's that lives on. And so there's this, the conceit in the book is that there's this place, this magical library that that every author has to, um, it's almost like uh, Fahrenheit 451, where you're responsible for a book because it's a it's like a living thing and, and you have to protect it. I wonder how you think it, it, about that in terms of, what your book manages to do. Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a wonderful, you know, mystical description of what, what 
every good novel does. It's, you know, you read a novel, it's a very intimate experience, and you get caught up in the world of the book, and it's like you're, you know, you're inhabiting the mind or the the soul of uh, of the person who wrote it in a way. You know, you I I read books and I come away feeling like, oh, you know, there's a little bit of Nabokov's soul clinging to me when I, you know, when I put the book down, or there's a little bit of Murakami's soul or a little bit of Marilyn Robinson's soul kind of trailing off, you know, as I, as I walk away from the book. And uh, I think, you know, that was definitely something that I was thinking about when I was writing The Night Ocean. And thank you for, for uh, not, uh, not, not spoiling the, the book surprises, but I think I can say, you know, without giving anything uh, away, that it is, among other things, a book about people who enter very intensely into uh, relationships with stories and who feel themselves being maybe taken over or even uh, possessed by the stories that they hear and that they read. Well, you even mentioned right at the beginning where Charlie, when, when Marina's describing Charlie as a, a researcher, how when he gets deep enough into his subject matter, he's able to predict what the the subject would or how they would behave to a striking yeah. striking degree. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've written a certain amount of nonfiction. I'm not sure that that's literally true, but it's certainly it's something that I can imagine being true. It's true in a kind of novelistic way. You get deep into the the world of uh, an imagined story or a story that you're telling. And uh, and the story starts to come alive to come to life around you, um, and uh, you know sometimes it turns out you can you know writer writers can have a kind of mild prophetic function. People uh, writing works of fiction have called it about the the way that the real world was going to go. Philip K. Dick is a, a pretty good example of that. But I think you know I was trying to to capture that quality of the, the, the moment where you really immerse yourself in the story, you really, you really kind of forget about yourself, and you, your being starts to drift toward the, the being of the, the person you're reading about or the person you're studying. You kind of escape from the, the limits of yourself, and you start kind of wandering into the territory of someone else, and that's a wonderful thing It happens. When you write, you know, when you're researching a, a, a book or a, an essay or an article, and I think it happens when you read, too. And it's one of the things that's, that's the most great, the most great about reading. Well, you speak about how reading is an intimate thing, but so something that was really fascinating to me in terms of, like, uh, inhabiting the space and the narrative was when when Charlie goes to Florida and uh, actually goes into the closet where Robert kept H.P. Lovecraft's manuscripts. And for whatever reason, yeah. that was so intimate and it made it so real because all of a sudden he's in the closet with these two guys and it, it's just a, it's such a confining space, but then the marks on the wall and everything just made it like... Like yeah. I was there. 
Well, so just maybe we could fill your, your listeners in a moment. So one of the things that the Night Ocean is about is uh, a visit that the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft pays to this young fan named Robert Barlow uh, at his house in central Florida in the summer of 1934. And Barlow did, in fact, have a, a special closet off his bedroom where he built a lot of bookshelves. And he was a, a book collector and a magazine collector, and he kept his collection in this closet. Uh, and uh, there's a certain irony about the, the most important room for Barlow being the closet, since he was himself closeted. Uh, he was a, a gay man, and he was not out at that point. Um, as far as the, the experience of reading it, I'm glad that you had that experience. I should tell you that I went to Florida, and I went to the house, and I, uh, there was no one there. It was kind of semi-abandoned. So I uh, walked around, and the back door was open, and I went in, and I went upstairs, and I kind of knew what to look for, and I figured out where Barlow's bedroom had been, and I just stood in that closet for a while, thinking about, wow, this is the place where Barlow had all of his kind of collecting activity and all of his interests and all this stuff that mattered really intensely to him was stored in this little, you know, in this little room. And Lovecraft was in the house with him, and surely there was a moment when the two of them were standing there together looking for one book or another on Barlow's shelves. And all I could think was, you know, this closet, this closet is not very big. And if you've got two people standing in it, it's really going to, you're going to be very close to each other. You're going to feel like you're about to touch the other person. You know, you're going to feel that person's presence quite strongly. Um, so that's what I was feeling when I was there, and I'm glad that something of that comes across when you read the book. An interesting thing that's been going on with H.P. Lovecraft lately is people are exploring the idea of horror, but you know they still respect his prowess as a writer, but at the same time, uh, contemporary people are having problems with his, his views. And so... Yeah. Um, there was a book that came out last summer called Lovecraft Country that dealt with institutional racism. Yeah, Matt Ruff's novel. Yeah, and then it's interesting because um, the movie Get Out really has, like when I read Matt Ruff's book, I thought, wow, I would love to see this with, you know, uh, you know an all-black cast doing these. This. Well, I have good news for you. I mean, I don't know, maybe I think that's going to happen. Oh, fun. Well, be, yeah. the movie Get Out, actually feels it has that same kind of uh, supernatural fun quality that, you know, uh, horror, uh, horror fans enjoy, but that at the same time there's this, the, the horror is in institutional racism. Um, yeah, racism and like, you know, brain-stealing mad scientists. Sure. But sure, yeah. yeah. But then for, you know, a portion of the horror of your book is this idea of homosexuality. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the views that you're alluding to, you know, of Lovecraft were, I guess, infamously now that Lovecraft was a racist and he expressed very frankly uh, his, his racist and xenophobic and anti-Semitic and homophobic views in his letters. And probably he did that in his conversation also, although uh, he was married to a Jewish woman and uh, 
he, for a, a homophobic anti-Semite, an awful lot of his friends were gay Jewish men. But, you know, we can, we can sort of set that aside. He was a complicated guy. Um, and I think very, you know, very rightly, the world has, has evolved to the point where some or many writers who are, who are now thinking about working on something related to Lovecraft don't feel comfortable passing over his racism in silence. And so it becomes, you know, maybe the focus of, of their work as it did for Matt Ruff or for Victor Laval's great novel, The Ballad of Black Tom, um, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Also, it's based on the craft story, The Horror at Red Hook, but it's obviously it's a, a sort of racially reimagined uh, version of that. Anyway, I think, you know, that's a good development. It's a, a kind of a healthy sign. For me, the interesting thing was, in fact, Barlow's sexual homosexuality, I guess, um, and the the cultural onus, you know, on homosexuality at the time when Barlow was alive, and the way that that prejudice made his life awful. Uh, he was a very brilliant and very talented and very energetic human being who accomplished just an extraordinary number of very different things over the course of his short life. But he was quite often very miserable. And I think one of the reasons he was miserable is because he was gay and he knew that he couldn't tell anyone about it. And he couldn't, he couldn't be, I mean, just to put it in the most basic terms, he couldn't be who he was. You know, and he moved to Mexico at a certain point in his life, and he had a, a slightly more free existence there. But in the end, uh, you know, he was, we think, likely blackmailed by a couple of his students at Mexico City College, where he taught, who were threatening to out him, which would have had pretty severe consequences for him professionally. Um, and there's a kind of horror in not in homosexuality, which has no horror in it, but in homophobia, in the, the way that, that a group of people or a society is able to treat some of its members with this just extraordinary cruelty. And that's a, a, a fairly horrifying fact of, of human society. There, there's another closet that shows up later on in the book and it, it's another library closet, and it also made an impression on me. And f so the fact that your book um, that considers these racist ideas would end up like at Auschwitz, that, I think that was important to me, and I'm, I was pleased that that was in included. Yeah, it, it ends up not quite at Auschwitz, but at Belsen, which was also a, a site of, yeah. of many atrocities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the... Lovecraft's horror is, is quite often about things that are beyond our regular world, creatures from other dimensions or other, other regions of the cosmos who show up to terrify us. But uh, I, I wanted to write a horror story, you know, without um, recourse to that uh, and just to prove take a look at some of the, the more uh, homegrown horrors, I guess. Um, and uh, so, indeed, one of the characters tells a story about visiting Belson, uh, 
just after the camp was liberated. And I read uh, a bunch of accounts when I was when I was getting ready to write the Night Ocean. I read a bunch of accounts written by British and Canadian uh, soldiers and doctors and other personnel who came to Belson in the days and weeks after liberation. And it's striking how their language is, there's a, there's a, I hesitate to say a Lovecraftian quality to it, but it's the language of horror fiction. They're using the words, you know, indescribable and unspeakable and beyond imagination and just the way that they talk about what they saw uh, uh, makes you think, well, you know, that this is a, a, a was a place on, on Earth in living memory when the kinds of things that happen in the most outlandish cosmic horror fiction just actually happened among human beings. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing was how your book speaks to the idea of the the nature of inquiry or knowing you know what what is true and for me it really resonated in our moment where the idea of i think you know there's the difference between the truth and a truth and then you know is it true at all kind of thing where there's an unraveling that happens yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that's certainly not something that I had planned to have such a, a current affairs uh, resonance when I when I started thinking about the night ocean. But it's true that the novel is about, uh, among other things, about a, um, a person who perpetrates a hoax. And then it's a little bit also about, you know, how you how you can know whether the stories that you're being told are true stories or not and how you handle that, you know, materially and intellectually and, and emotionally too, um, how you deal with the experience of being lied to or the, the suspicion that you're being lied to. And I finished the book and, you know, I think the last changes to the, the page group were done in September. And then, boom, all of a sudden, you know, in November, December, uh, we, we started getting, uh, you know, this, this public discourse, you know, kind of nonstop public discourse about fake news and alternative facts. And, and it seemed as though, and I guess it still seems as though, you know, the whole question of what's true has become very important. It's, you know, we, 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 we're sort of thrown back on this very basic question. We can't even ask what's good or what's fair or what's sensible in the long term. We're just back to the most basic question, which is what's actually happening. Um, and, uh, you know, that's an upsetting place to be. Nobody wants to be spending their energy just establishing the basic facts of their environment. Um, uh, I guess it was a good setting for a horror novel or a good emotional setting for a horror novel. It's, it's fascinating because on some level it feels like your book is in your book. You know, like this is a fully complete universe that almost eats itself. Does that sound strange? Yeah. No, I, I can see why you say that. It's sort of about books that exist. 
right? It's a, you know, it's a story about stories, and you get engrossed in it, and then you know maybe there's the the story changes track, so you have to kind of handle the dislocation. Um, uh, I was you know I was definitely thinking about it as a story about writers and readers, among other things. It's it's also a love story, and you know, or a couple of love stories, but it has you know the Many of the characters are writers, and and they're telling stories, and they're being read. So, you know, maybe that reaches outward and kind of uh, touches the, the book that I wrote also. Well, so the interesting thing is, so th- the result of the idea of fake news and facts is more due diligence from a reading public. And so yeah. <laughs> in the case of your book... You know, with uh, with shifting shifting sands, as it were, you know, it, it's funny because at the same time, it, it also, you know, do your homework. You want to know what's true, you know, do your homework kind of stuff. Where, where uh, Charlie, yeah. Charlie is our, our protagonist who's trying to figure out what's true, but sometimes he's not critical enough of the source material. Yeah, I mean, we should we should say that that my book is a novel. It's really, it doesn't claim to be anything other than a novel. It is, it's a work of fiction. So at some level, even though it, it does touch on historical subjects and historical characters, it's really a work of the imagination. And, you know, there's no, there's nothing to be fact-checked in that sense. Um, it, it exists in its, its own little fictive world and it's there to be thought about and enjoyed and reflected on, but it's not there to be believed the way the news is there to be believed. That said, you know, there, there is a lot of historical fact in the book and some of it is, I think probably it's pretty clear that it's historical fact and maybe some of it, you know, the, it's less clear which parts are uh, based on, on fact and which parts are, are inventions. And Maybe, I mean, you know, I, I, there's no, the reader has absolutely zero obligation to, to check any of those things, but, uh, but a reader who gets curious about the subject matter might have fun trying to kind of root around in the histories and learn a little, you know, learning a little bit about the, uh, the actual historical people on whom the novel is based. Elsie Spinks, is, is he an invention or is he... I, see, I don't even know if that's a spoil, spoiler or not to ask that question. Have to look it up. Yeah. Yeah, okay, but so the, the, one of the fun things that your book does, though, is these readers and writers oftentimes can be perceived as lonely folks, but then when they find their people, there's something very exciting about that. Yeah, yeah. It's about, I mean, there are these communities of readers a very powerful bond. If you can, you know, I think about Barlow, who grew up, he was, his father was in the army, so he was a kind of military brat, and uh, he didn't have a lot of formal schooling. He grew up uh, in different parts of the country, depending on where his father was stationed, and he didn't have a lot of friends in real life. You know, he, he had, his social world was all about reading, and, uh, you know, you can just imagine what it meant to him to meet Lovecraft, to, to enter into actual contact with somebody who 
shared all of his enthusiasms and what a powerful bond that would have been. Um, and I think that's true for for every reader who you know finds fellow readers who share that that love. You know, you whatever it's for, um, you get to step out of your isolation for a moment and feel like, oh my God, you're not you know, like I'm not the only person in the world who loves whatever it is. Um, there are other people like me and I can meet them and I can talk to them and that's enormously comforting. Yes, but at the same time, there's this, this feeling that, there's almost this feeling that it's a looking back where look at all these folks where this dense um, community was formed here and all I can do at this point is read about their experience. Oh, too, oh, not at all. I think I don't. I don't think that's right. I think that uh, you know, it is one of the, the things that that happens in the novel is there's a certain amount of uh, of story about the early days of science fiction fandom in the late 1930s, um, and that was indeed a very dense and very small community when the first world science fiction convention was held in New York in in the summer of 1939. You know, there couldn't have been 200 people in the room, and that was the world of active fandom. Uh, but, but fandom is very much alive and well. You know, if you go to Comic Con or one of its offshoots, or to, you know, there are a bunch of Lovecraft conventions held around the country every year, and that's their other conventions for fans of other writers. Um, that experience of being a fan and of hanging out with other fans is uh, it's, it's flourishing. And not only is it flourishing, but it's still breeding the same kinds of feuds and controversies and rivalries and intense, passionate, uh, you know, friendships, but also intense, passionate hatreds and animosities as it was in 1939. The scale has been magnified and I think probably there's a lot more money in the game now, which, which changes everything and makes it all a little, you know, a little, a little less real. But, uh, but the emotional core of it is very much uh, present and available for anybody who wants to participate in it. Yeah. And, and I would agree with that because one of the, even though you read about these historical parties, it feels like the party is ongoing, that there's this kind of, transmigration of souls and that your your people are out there you just need to find them well that's a very that's a very hopeful way to think about it but i think you know it's certainly in the case of science fiction fandom that's true and one of the the lovely things that's happening in fandom now is that it's becoming less white and more inclusive so you know it's like possible for a, a greater variety of, of people to to find their people within it if they happen to be science fiction fans. Mm-hmm. Well, so th- this book uses a story written by Barlow and H.P. Lovecraft as kind of the heart of it, this night ocean. Could you talk a little bit about that and the importance of why you chose that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Barlow and Lovecraft collaborated on uh, on a number of stories, I think six, but maybe eight. And uh, Barlow, you know, what would happen is Barlow would write the story and then Lovecraft would revise it. 
and uh, make, you know, he'd edit it and make some changes as he saw fit. And The Night Ocean was the last of their collaborations. It was, uh, Barlow wrote it probably in the summer of 1936, um, and Lovecraft uh, probably edited it sometime, you know, in, the, in September, October, maybe, 1936. Uh, it was published in early 1937, and then Lovecraft died um, just uh, in March of 1937, so soon afterwards. And um, it's it's a haunting story. Uh, it's mostly Barlow's work. If the manuscript is in the archives at the Brown University Library, and you can see Lovecraft's corrections. The words are mostly Barlow's. It's a story about an artist who goes to uh, rent a he rents a house on a beach somewhere, probably in New England. And he is uh, sort of nervously exhausted from overwork. And he sees these strange fish-like creatures swimming in the ocean. And at one point, he waves at them. And they look at him astonished. And then they sort of wait for him to make the next move. And he doesn't know what to do. And so they swim on. And unlike, you know, in a Lovecraft story, where sooner or later you would have found the, the secret of the fish people and their story would have been told by, you know, a drunken sea captain or a, an ancient manuscript or a, a carved tablet or whatever. Uh, the Barlow story doesn't ever explain them. It doesn't tell you what they were. You're just left with the feeling of having come close to something, of seeing that the world is very strange and sort of feeling like, okay, that was that was super strange, and I didn't really understand it, and I feel a little sad. And uh, that's a, a kind of a powerful feeling. It's something that I can easily imagine Barlow himself feeling, you know, either in relation to his own desire, which he was kind of keeping hidden at that point, or in relation to Lovecraft himself. You know, this this sort of mysterious and powerful figure who passed through his life and with whom he had a certain amount of intimacy, but maybe not as much as he wanted, you know, and there's just this feeling of like, okay, we passed through each other's lives and we kind of wave at each other and then we don't know what to do next. And then we, we, we swim away and that's it, you know, and the, the, the ocean keeps going on and time passes and we're mortal. And that was what we had. So that's, that's, my, at least that's my, my feeling about the story, The Night Ocean. And I, I wanted to use it in my book, both I, because I love its title, and it's a beautiful title. I stole it for, for the title of my book. And um, because uh, there's something of that, that feeling of trying to understand, of trying to connect, of trying to, um, to get to the bottom of things that I wanted to, uh, to evoke. In uh, in my novel, and and you mention in chapter two, this is not the story of our marriage. Still, yeah. still, and so it's interesting to me because there is this the sense that Marina wants to know. She, she wants to she wants to really know Charlie's soul, but it's so hard to know a person at the same time. People are full of mystery, right? Even the people we we think we know best you know, manage to do things that surprise and confound us. 
and uh, that's that, that's that's a regular occurrence. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not always tragic. In fact, but but it can be. But but the idea of of the writer also is there the artist and and the mysteries of life, you know how how much can we know? And this really speaks to my audience. This idea of you know the kind of maybe the word milieu that H. P. Lovecraft is exploring. You know the mysteries. What what can we know? You know Crowley and all this stuff. Is it yeah. Is it the surface or are they really touching depths? And and revealing truths that that you know us surface dwellers just don't have any sense of. Well, Lovecraft stories are all about people who stumble on hidden truths about the world, and generally they're very awful truths. Um, and uh, he definitely had a sense of the the tragic nature of the the quest for knowledge that we're doomed to learn things which are going to make us uh, less happy than we were before. Um, I don't, I mean, I think you'd have to, you'd have to be pretty far gone down the Lovecraft path to imagine that the things that he reveals about the universe correspond in any way to the real nature of the universe. I don't think there are giant tentacle monsters slash gods waiting at the bottom of the ocean to, you know, to come up and destroy civilization. Although, you know, surprise me, maybe it'll happen. But um, but I think what Lovecraft does capture quite accurately, and the, the truth that he sees, is how uh, not only how scary the unknown is to us, um, but how scary our own powers of reasoning are to us, because they lead us kind of inexorably into the unknown, and they're they're an unescapable part of who we are. We are reasoning animals. And so our fate is to keep looking in those closets, even though the universe is saying, hey, don't look in that closet. You're not going to like what you find there. You mentioned again and again about it's, it's not that, well, how do I phrase it? Do you think Lovecraft could love? Was, was he capable yeah. of love? Well, you know, love means a lot of different things. Um, Love, love shows up in a lot of different ways in different people. Um, Lovecraft felt an attachment that I would call love to the city of Providence where he was born and where he spent most of his life. Um, uh, he loved history and he loved, I think, the world that he had created, not in his stories, but in his letters. Uh, he wrote a truly staggering number of letters, maybe or a hundred as many as a hundred thousand letters um, over the course of his relatively short life, and he sort of forged all of these social bonds with people, some of whom he never met in person, who shared interests and enthusiasms with him, and he would put them in touch with each other and kind of weave this this social fabric. And I think you have to imagine him as loving that. It's just such a big part of his life and and such a big part of his time. You know, if you think about how many hours it would take to write 100,000 
lengthy letters, uh, you wouldn't do that unless you you felt a kind of love for the the, the process and the result. And so he wasn't necessarily the the unknowable alien himself that he was describing? No. Everybody's an unknowable alien. And Lovecraft was was more markedly peculiar than some people. But in a way, that actually makes him more legible because, you know, the things that are odd about him really stand out. And you don't have to dig very far for, for them. And also because he wrote so much. You know, in his correspondence, you actually like. There's a lot of a lot of material to work with to try to figure out what he was like. His life was was not an unexamined life. You know, the 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 facts of where he was and what he did for most of it are pretty well documented. Uh, so that in a way, I think he's probably strangely uh, knowable. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Douglas. That was wonderful. You bet. You've been listening to Paul Lafarge on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. For more information about his work, visit paullafarge.com. For more information about The SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at TheSyncBook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access, the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And the story leaves us with a sense of futility of even trying to understand. We will vanish from the earth, the artist says, but the ocean will be around forever. Still believes in choice, not I.